Kia ora e tihoa me te whanau. Welcome, friends and family, to the Candid Kiwi podcast. I'm your host, Melissa, and I am the Candid Kiwi. Kia ora and welcome. Before we get into episode six, I just wanted to correct a couple of things I said in episode five. In episode five, I said that I was a good student at Southland Girls High, and I wasn't. I wasn't a good student at all. Like, I was only a good student in the last maybe couple of years, but the first couple of years, I was an atrocious student that almost got suspended from school. So if there's any girls' high teachers out there that were listening to my fifth episode, which there probably absolutely wasn't, they'd be sitting there thinking, whatever, you were a nightmare. And so that's fact check number one. I was not a good student for the first couple of years of high school at all. I was a total brat. Number two, I said that I lived in Quebec with the Cabris while, for a month while we were doing our uh, out-of-country experience for law school with the kids. That is not true. We visited Quebec, but um, the Cabris live in Montreal, and that's where we stayed for the four weeks, was in Montreal. So those were the two things that I needed to correct myself in and uh, maybe I can talk a little bit more about those two things in a future episode but for now I didn't want to be a liar and to be saying things that wasn't in fact true. So number one I was a brat in high school and number two Montreal not Quebec. (laughs) Thanks guys let's get started. Kia ora and welcome to my sixth episode. I'm excited to be able to introduce you to my friend Joseph. Joseph and I have known each other for a decade and we met through our church. Joseph and his family are the kind of people that you want on your team. When Drew fell off the ladder and got two brain bleeds a couple of years ago, Joseph was the one that came over the most and visited Drew and sat and talked to him and they were there for us throughout all of it. Um, When we were moving from our rental house into our new house, Joseph was the one that showed up and stayed until well into the wee hours of the morning cleaning and helping us out. We don't see them all the time, but we know that if there's something that we need, Joseph and his family are the people that will be there for us. These are the kind of people that they are. I'm excited for you to be able to listen to Joseph and his stories. Uh, He served in the Marines and still serves in there in a different capacity, but he's been deployed four times and tells us some of the reasons he was deployed and some of the things that happened to him while there. He also goes into account of his injury and what happened to to him one day on a convoy and um, securing that convoy and being able to get through that. He will always suffer from his injuries, but as you'll hear, he doesn't complain about it and is happy to be alive and to be uh, able to do everything that he still loves. I appreciate Joseph being with us today, and this is definitely my longest podcast, but Joseph has a lot of stories, so... If you want to split it up, split it up. If you want to sit back and have a good time with us, sit back and have a good time. But give Joseph a listen and allow him to teach you some things. I learned so much listening to Joseph, and I hope that you can learn a bunch from him as well. I know that you will. So let's get started. 
Hey, so I'm here with my buddy Joseph. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Thanks it's, for asking me. Yeah, it's good to be here. One of my very first guests and um, I'm really super grateful that you took the time to be able to be with me and be able to share your story with us. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Yeah. So why did you choose to serve? I guess it just starts from when I was when I was a kid. Uh, did you have anyone in your family that served I, that you? I had a to, couple or? of uncles who served, uh, but I wasn't even like real close with them. It was mm. probably more uh, just the way I was raised. My family um, was always very patriotic, mm-hmm. uh, and and I was always taught that kind of your your priorities were supposed to be like your your God, your family, and your country. Yeah. And uh, so I always felt like there was kind of a a duty if called upon to serve and I think I as as far back as I can remember I I wanted to be able to serve. Wow, I wonder what that was. Did your brother want to serve at all or this is just you? Um I mean I had older brothers but I was the first one to to join any military service out of my That's really interesting. out of my siblings and and uh, I have an older brother who actually joined the Marine Corps right after I did, about three oh, months okay. after I did. Yeah. Um, but so it's just something inside of you that called to you. It it was. I don't know. It always appealed to me growing up and and from like as a little kid, I'd always have people would always ask like, you know, that what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, and I don't know if it's just it's partly like. Uh, with with the Marine Corps, it, it was partly the kind of the stigma mm-hmm. of the Marine Corps is this big mystery, mm-hmm. and and everybody. If I said when I said like oh I want to I want to be a Marine when I grow up, they're like oh you could never do that. You have to be really tough to be a Marine. <laughs> Were or, you a wussy kid or something? You no, know, <laughs> uh, I don't think so. <laughs> or they were like, they were like oh no you don't want to do that like. Like they own your life when, like, when you join the Marine Corps. Mm. Like you don't want to do that. Mm. And uh, and me being contrarian or whatever, <laughs> uh, just made me want to do it even more. Yeah. And uh, um, so so it was kind of, but I don't know that I ever that I wanted to do it as like a lifelong thing when I was a kid. It was something that I felt like, yeah, I wanted to serve, but mm-hmm. probably not as like. Forever. my my entire career or, yeah or anything like that yeah. um and right when i graduated high school i uh i went down and tried to enlist uh-huh. and uh and because i was actually i was homeschooled mm-hmm. and so when i was when i was done with my homeschooling like I, i'm ready to graduate i went down and and uh through the state offices or whatever took my uh the GED tests mm-hmm. for a general education degree and then my high school equivalency test mm-hmm. and got my high school equivalency and and when I went to the recruiter's office they were there it's I know now that it's just it's extra paperwork mm-hmm. if you don't have a regular high school diploma if you have like a GED and a high school equivalency mm-hmm. um and they were just lazy and didn't want to do the extra paperwork <laughs> and I guess maybe they'd already met their quotas for the month or whatever so th- they were just like oh sorry like you don't 
you don't have a high school diploma, we can't help you. And turned me away. So I, I just, my dad owned a construction company and I just started working construction because I, I graduated when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And, uh, can you join the Marines when you're 17? With parent signature, you can. How old, what's the youngest that you can join with a parent signature? 17. Okay. Yep. And, but, and then you don't need, obviously, anything. When you're 18, just sign for yourself. Yeah, you're an adult. Uh, but so I, I just worked, uh, worked construction, earning money and saving money, um, until, until 9-11 happened. And how old were you with 9-11? So I was 18, almost 19 when 9-11 happened. Okay. And just a couple months after 9-11 happened, I walked back into the recruiters and... This time? And, yeah, and, I, and this different. time I didn't, I didn't, well, I didn't give it an option. I was yeah. like, no, like, this is going to happen. Uh, you, you need to sign me up. I'm, I'm going to go fight for my country. Awesome. Um, and, and that's, and I, when I told my parents I wanted to... You know, now it wasn't just like a, oh, join in the military. Now, like, we're at war. Yeah. And and so, you know, they were very... Worried. Yeah, very concerned, very yeah. worried. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I remember my mom, she just asked, she asked that, that question, that why. Yeah. But hers was like like a mother, like, why? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like just I crestfallen, feel you, mom. right? I feel you, mom. <laughs> and... and uh, and I had one of those, you know, every once in a while a teenager ha- actually has a brilliant, like, nugget of wisdom. Yeah. So so my answer, I gave my answer, and my there's nothing my parents could say to, like, dispute it. I said, I said, Mom, <clears throat> I feel like we live in this incredible country with all these freedoms. And it seems like once every generation or two, uh, people are called on to secure those freedoms and and they have to pay for them mm-hmm. i'm young healthy strong and single if not me then who yeah and what'd your mom say nothing she yeah she's it, just kind of like, like a chick mate. Uh, <laughs> said, this this is my generation's call like and, and it's our duty we have to secure this for Future for future generations so my kids can have freedom you know because at that we were just yeah. a couple couple months after you know planes flying into the yeah. towers in new york yeah, and the pentagon yeah, and, yeah that was that was when i first come into this country i had married drew in july and i'd come to new zealand in september uh, august i got my first job and then 9-11 happened and I was like what the crap have I moved into <laughs> what did I yeah. do and so it was a big event in my life but not like how it sounds like it was in yours why did you choose the marines I mean tell me about all the different agencies that you could have joined or I don't know what the word if even agencies groups whatever they're called what do we have we have the army right yeah so they're they're branches of our of military right branches of military there we go so and so now we have six branches of the military uh-huh. so you have the army navy air force marine corps the coast guard and now the space force yeah that's exciting that's yeah. exciting and so why the marines why the marines uh i was always very competitive 
mm-hmm. growing up. And uh, well, so, so I'll say for for two reasons here, right? So I was always very competitive, and the stigma around the Marines was that they were the toughest. Okay. They're the toughest. They're the hardest. Okay. Uh, so so one was just kind of that competitive drive to like. <laughs> If I'm going to go, I want to go, like, be the toughest, be the hardest. Uh The other was actually another, like, little bit of smart wisdom on my part is uh, I was joining knowing and and with the intent to go to war. Yeah. So if I'm going to go fight, I want the toughest, best trained, hardest guys to my right and my left. That's crazy. That's amazing. Tell me, like, in a brief, like, minute nutshell, the difference between the Army and the Navy. Like, what's their number one thing that they're known for? I guess the milita- the Marines are known for that. Like, the Air Force is known for air, you know, and and planes and stuff. The Army are boots on the ground type thing, right? Yep. And then the um, Coast Guard is out at sea. Yeah, the Coast and Guard. helicopters. Well, so you have, you have the Navy. The Navy is... is uh, a Navy out at sea, yep. right? The Coast Guard, um, so they don't go like deep out at sea. It's the coastline. So state coast close to the coastline, but it doesn't just mean the U.S. Like they'll deploy to to the coast of other countries. Yep, and to help mm. secure coastlines that our forces are on, or to help our allies secure their coastlines. I had no idea. Yep. That's cool. Yeah, so they deploy. I mean, I think like in the Philippines and in. In uh, Indonesia, mm. uh, we have lots of, uh, like, constantly Coast Guard over there helping, training with, huh. and helping those countries that are allies of ours oh. uh, secure their coasts. Yeah. So, so, so they do the, a lot too. So the Army and the Marines, they're both boots on the ground. So what's the difference between being a Marine and, and the Army? To a person who knows nothing like me, I know it's more complicated than what you're saying, but just... What's the no, short I think I can, I can, I can nutshell it down. <clears throat> the Marine Corps was created as an amphibious fighting force. So you swam as well as... We, we deploy off of Navy ships. Oh, I see. I so, see. And, and the Marine Corps... So you need to know how to swim. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and we all do pass swim tests. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but more so, like, that allows us because we deploy off of Navy ships, we can respond anywhere in the world in 24 hours. Mm, mm. So, because uh, you'll have, the, the Marine Corps has a maritime prepositioning force. So that'll be like a giant cargo ship that will be with a, a Navy fleet. Mm. And that cargo ship is full of equipment. Mm-hmm. All the tanks, trucks, beans, bullets, and band-aids needed for Marines. Mm-hmm. And... They can, you either have Marines that are on Navy ships, mm-hmm. uh, like a, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, mm-hmm. or they can fly Marines in and the ship can anchor out to sea off of a coast mm-hmm. and they can, they can literally build a floating pier from the ship right onto the beach of the coast and start offloading all the gear and you fly Marines in and the Marines just fall in on the gear Mm-hmm. and go to work okay well that's a great difference and then the army is just on land then well the army has the army has air capabilities and they have some some sea capability stuff okay. as well okay so but the army is like the main force okay 
uh, one of the things I think it describes it well and it got it became kind of a catchphrase for the Marine Corps over the last two or three decades is we're like the, the tip of the spear. Uh-huh. Our whole job, we're not supposed to be an occupying force. Mm-hmm. Our whole job is to get in fast, mm-hmm. get a foothold, mm-hmm. and assess the situation mm-hmm. in order to allow the uh-huh. army to bring in, because uh-huh. the army has probably 10 times the personnel yeah. and equipment and budget uh-huh. of the Marine Corps. Interesting. So Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. That's cool. I had no idea. I had no idea. So how long have you served for? So you served since you were 18 because they said yes, you didn't give them a choice. <laughs> and so you started at 18 and today you're, how old are you? Well, so actually, so I enlisted right after I turned uh, 19. Excuse me, 19. And uh, <clears throat> like 9-11 happened when I was 18 and then a couple months later, right after I turned 19, I went down and enlisted. I'm 38 now and uh-huh. I actually, I hit my my 19th anniversary in the Marine Corps in two months. So you still work for the Marines? I do. And so tell me like what you do now for the Marines because obviously I've seen you a lot so you haven't been deployed lately. (laughs) So your job has changed from your deployment days to now. So obviously at the beginning it was war but then this last part it's less that, right? Yes. Um, So yeah, so for... For the first 16 years of my career, I was with a tank unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so M1 Abrams tanks. Uh, I initially trained as a tank mechanic. Okay. And then uh, cross-trained as a, a tank operator. Okay. So and in the Marine Corps, they they it's just kind of their standard procedure. So they have uh, one trained tank mechanic on every tank crew seems smart or at least with every tank so so a crew is four people um and but tanks never never are positioned like tactics like in battle they're never positioned by themselves tanks always go in pairs okay so they can watch and cover each other so two tanks is a section so they they try to have uh one tank mechanic per tank crew but mm-hmm. they would for sure always have one tank mechanic per, per section. section okay and uh and then there's lots of other tank mechanics and they have their own vehicles that come and work on tanks or whatever but if you're in the fight and something goes wrong and you have a tank mechanic who's able to either fix it on the fly or they can troubleshoot it and assess it and radio back mm. so that the tank mechanics who are coming up mm-hmm they know, know like what they're coming the into. Right, yeah, and they know the right parts to bring right. and the right stuff so you can get them and that was back you. on their feet as fast as That was as you for the first 16 years, a mechanic and then a... Um... And, a and a tank uh, operator. Yeah. So, and then... Uh, but And I, I cross-trained with a lot. you got to wear a lot of different hats, especially yeah. in the Marine Corps. Because uh-huh. uh, the Marine Corps, out of all six of those branches, mm-hmm. there, there's probably two other things that I think separate the Marine Corps from... Okay. From all the other Tell branches. Me. One is due to, you know, political stuff way up the chain. <laughs> uh, the Marine Corps gets less money per capita than any other branch. Right. We are the least funded. That now sucks. In, from my viewpoint, that's a good thing. Okay. It forces Marines 
to be incredibly inventive and adaptive. Okay. We, we have to get creative and, and figure out how to make things, how to do more with less. Yeah. And, and because it's been that way for a long, long time, it's part of marine like culture. culture. Yeah. Right. So it's just, it's fostered. Whereas in some of the other services, if it's like, oh, they, they have all the parts they want, they get all, but when you get in combat, supply lines get disrupted. Your, your logistics, like somebody puts the wrong label on something or they check the wrong box. And so things don't show up. And, and a lot of the, they're, they're lost. It's like, oh, we didn't get the gear or the equipment or the food or the whatever. Like, uh, what do we do? Marines are just like, Marines adapt. Well, yeah. You just adapt, improvise and overcome. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so that's, that's the one thing. Uh, and then the, the second thing, um, is the mindset Mm -hmm. within the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. So the Marine Corps from the get go, they train with a different mindset Mm -hmm. than all the other branches. Mm -hmm. So if you join the army, Mm -hmm. you would, you go to your initial training, say, say you join the army to be like a supply person who does logistics or a technical, like a tech support person who works with computers Uh or a radio technician or something Uh like that. Right. You'd go to boot camp. You would initially like go through all the boot camp stuff and you'd qualify with a rifle, Mm -hmm. uh, and learn a little bit of fighting skills and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you could do 20 years in the army Mm -hmm. and never touch or fire a weapon again. Mm -hmm. Like you just specialize in your job. Mm -hmm. Uh, and same thing with the air force, with the Navy, uh, on down the line, Uh not with the Marine Corps. So the Marine Corps, they, they have two huge things with their mindset. One of them is this like incredibly tight, brotherhood like they foster this no marine left behind mm-hmm. tight tight brotherhood mm-hmm. uh and, and esprit de corps sounds like so, they need it so marines are very tight-knit i think you'll find that marines are typically very much they're more clannish than any other okay branch of service <laughs> members um uh but the other thing the marine corps they they train and instill as a mindset that every marine is a basic rifleman first Mm -hmm. that's that's your primary thing Mm -hmm. so every single marine before they go to their radio school or 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 like for me to go to the the tank mechanic tank mechanic school Mm -hmm. or even for for other tank operators before they go to to just the the tank operator school or any of that every marine goes through the school of infantry Mm -hmm. that's male they need to know how to fight male female you name it, doesn't matter. Every yeah. Marine goes through the School of Infantry, and every Marine has to qualify with a rifle every single year. Oh, really? They have to maintain their fighting, and they have to do martial arts training, qualify with a rifle. Uh, there, there, are, there are Marine Corps-wide basic combat skills that the Marine Corps uh, requires... So you Everyone know how to legit to fight. You know how to legit do. fight. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've done a lot of training. 
<laughs> and a lot of sparring. And I've definitely lost way more times than I've won. <laughs> well, you've done more fighting than me, that's for sure. You'd know what to do in a sticky situation. So 16 years you were in it with the tanks and you were going where you were told to go. And then after that you decided, probably because of family and kids, to get out and to do something different for them? or uh, So after... After that, so at about 16 years, I uh, I had an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So uh, I got selected for a promotion uh, in in my rank, and and I, I could have just stayed within my job, but mm -hmm. I I had an opportunity to kind of take a break from operations and deploying and all of that yeah. for uh, a, yeah. a three year break. Yeah, and. Well, with an option, it's like a, it was a three-year commitment and then an option to extend potentially for two years. So you do a one-year uh -huh. extension at a time, but so it, it could be up to a five-year five-year deal. And so the job I do now is largely a desk job, mm -hmm. and it is I, I get to do it mostly from home. Yeah. Uh, so, so ever since the 1970s, I can't remember the exact year. Um, the like after after Vietnam, mm -hmm. all U.S. military has been an all volunteer service. Haven't had a draft since yeah, Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. But they also they standardized every initial enlistment contract is eight years long. Oh, okay. And it doesn't matter what branch of service you're in. This is like military wide in the U.S. Okay. So, so if somebody goes down and they enlist in any branch of the service, their enlistment contract is eight years. Okay. okay. Now. That can be broken up in different ways. Okay. So my first six years uh, in the Marine Corps was active duty. Okay. So that was my all-day, everyday job. Okay. Uh, and it's it's a it's not like a nine-to-five. It's it's when more than a job. It's like a, a lifestyle, right? Okay. It is 24 hours a day, um, and you're, you're paid a salary, and, and you could be, even when you're not deployed... You could be just training and and be gone for two or three weeks, not see any of your family or whatever, just be out working solid. That was your first six years. Yeah. So my first six years was was active duty, um, and then and and not by years. that wasn't even by design. Like I initially joined into the reserves, but with everything going on with the war, like deployment and all that kind of stuff, uh, I ended up doing six years of active duty. Mm -hmm. And then I dropped back to reserve status. So okay. in the reserves, it's this one weekend a month, two weeks a year. So you have a civilian job that you have you have to have the, you know, a civilian career yeah. to pay your bills, put food over your head or roof, roof over your head and food on your table. Yeah, food over our head. That's and okay. A, and a roof on our yeah. table. Um, <laughs> but uh, so is that what you did for the next ten years? Was you were in the reserves? That's that's what I've done since then. Yep. Okay. And so, so for that, so I only, only work part time. Right. And I only get paid part time. Right. Right. I get I so get paid for the job. days that I work. Right? Yeah. Okay. So. And how do you feel about that? Like the difference between active and as it? Because you said when you were a kid, you only wanted to be in it for a certain amount of time, and this wasn't a forever job for you. So that actually sounds pretty like that. It worked out pretty perfect for I, you. I love it. It is. Yeah. It is. It's tough because the higher, 
the, the more rank that you attain, mm -hmm. the more responsibilities you gain. What rank are you at the moment? I am an uh, E8, so a Master Sergeant in the Marine Corps. So tell me about tell me about those ranks quickly. Give me the list of like what that is. Like so when I'm, I first come in, what am I? Yeah, so I, I'm an enlisted. Uh-huh. So an enlisted, uh, you first come in is an E1 is a private. Okay. And then E2 is a private first class. Okay. E3 is a lance corporal. Okay. E4 is a corporal. Uh-huh. E5 is a sergeant. Uh-huh. E6 is a staff sergeant. Uh-huh. E7 is a gunnery sergeant. Uh-huh. And then it splits and you either go administrative route. Okay. Or your technical specialty route. Okay. So administrative route E8 would be a first sergeant. That's you. No, nope, I'm a master Sorry. sergeant. Excuse so I'm a me. technical specialty Sorry. route. That's all right. <laughs> I'm screwing it up. Uh, Telling you what you are or not. <laughs> no, that's all right. That was that was one of the things like where that was one of my my biggest kind of where the Marine Corps was like, eh, screw you. Like we're gonna do what we want, not what you want. But was actually a blessing to me. Because yeah. I trained to be a first sergeant, and while I was a gunnery sergeant, I actually served in a, a first sergeant's job for a mm -hmm. year and a half. Mm -hmm. And 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 because you get to elect when you're a, a gunnery sergeant, you you elect. I want to go the first sergeant route, or I want to go the master sergeant route. Yeah. And the first sergeant route, being administrative, is uh, there's a lot of adult babysitting involved. Okay. So you have to so so the first sergeant would be like a senior enlisted advisor to a commanding officer for like a company. Okay. So a company of Marines could be like 120 Marines and okay. you're in most charge. of these Marines, 100 of these Marines are between the ages of 18 and 22. Okay. So well, try dealing with 118 to 22 year old. This is what you guys. have to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's well, a lot of like lucky you're older and you're a bit more adult patient babysitting. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and and I was doing that job as a gunnery sergeant. It is stressful. Yeah. And you get calls all hours of the day and the night, whatever. Uh -huh. But that's what I had elected because it's also very re rewarding. You yeah, get to mentor and help yeah. these guys to to develop, become good sergeants, good staff yeah. sergeants, good leaders, good men, yeah. good marines. Yeah. And you'd be great at that. You'd be great at that. And and I loved it. It was very stressful. <laughs> but I loved it. It's like being a parent, but in a little bit of a yeah. lesser, lesser level. Yeah. Still intense. But so when I when I, I elected to go that route, but when the promotion board looked at everything... Like there were, what you had done. Well, there were major gaps in the manpower needs of my technical expertise. So they pushed you so into they the were technical like, rather than the administrative side, didn't they? They were like... You would make a great first sergeant. Yeah. But we really need, and we can take someone from any technical specialty yeah. and make them a first sergeant to yeah, fill the manpower yeah. needs we need for first sergeants. But we need you. But we need your technical specialty. You're going here. And what do you think? It was a huge blessing. It's the same right. pay raise, right. exact same pay raise, 95% less stress. <laughs> Joseph, that's like, awesome. Thank yeah. you, Marine Corps. I, I awesome. literally, my doctor was about to put me on blood pressure medication. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like my blood pressure was yes. elevated and they're like, they're like, if you can't get it down in the next three months, we're going to put you on medication. And then I switched over to, from doing the, this first sergeant job, I got selected to be a master sergeant. And then I got this, 
this opportunity, which I couldn't have if I was a first sergeant, but as a master sergeant, I had this opportunity to join this unit where I largely work from home. What a blessing. And and so, yeah, and the blood pressure levels came down yeah, and it's yeah, like, oh, yeah. you take away the stress. That's all good. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's like so awesome. So, so you have the guys that are like the active duty all day and you have the guys that are reserved that do part-time like me. Yep. And the, the job I do with my unit now is the, the, the third uh, type of Marine or, or part of their contract is you have the guys that, that they, they don't work at all. But so, so the, the typical active duty Marine enlistment okay. is what we call a four by four. So it's four years of active duty yep. and four years of inactive ready reserves. Okay. So these guys are not the ones, the guys who go On like, front like me, like, well, the guys that do the weekend stuff, like yeah. one weekend a month are drilling reserves. Okay. So these guys inactive ready reserves, they're for all intents and purposes, like they don't, they don't ever put a uniform on. They don't have to shave or cut their hair. Like, they're civilians. But they're, they're the next ones to be called. Yeah, so their name is still, like, technically, they're still in the Marine Corps. They're still in the Marine Corps. Their name's in a database. Yep. And if World Something War III were to happen yep. and we were like, we got we need everybody we can. Instead of drafting. They could still call all those all right. those people back. Is this the same in every six um, um, yes. groups or just the Marines? No, in, in all they six, that's the way these, the military. They have these ready reserved people. Yep, because okay. so every contract's eight years, but most of them it's only going to be three or four or five active. or six years of actually active duty. Active duty or of drilling reserve time. Okay. And then the remaining time is this inactive ready reserve. Where you go about your life, right? But if your name's calls, still in a bit in the database. Yeah. So if duty calls, so my job now that I do from home is keep track of all those guys and girls, all these Marines that are uh, that are in, in the inactive ready reserves. Yeah, yes. yeah. Cool. So I'm like calling them on the phone, make sure I have good contact information. It it's still rewarding. It's it's great because I get. I get to help a lot of them because some yeah. of them they're like, they're like, you know, I talk to them. I don't just like, oh yeah, check in the box. Yep, yeah, we got good contact information for you. You're still alive. You still have your uniforms. Yeah. If we were to call you back, everything's good. And you know, I'll talk to you in six months. Uh-huh. I talk to them. Hey, how are things going? Yeah. Like, are you are you are you working? Do you have a job? Do you have a career path? Are you yeah. going to school? What? And if they're not, there are so many resources out there and i've found people right. who were homeless they were unemployed and i'm able to Aww. get them in contact and be like hey that's great Joseph, we've hooked people great. up with with job interviews and different so and that's part of that also like where marines take care of their own yeah yeah that that culture that's fostered that we care about each other and and that's marines awesome. feel even when they're out of the marine corps if you join the army you're in the army if you join the air force you're in the Air Force. If you join the Navy, you're in the Navy. If you join the Marine Corps, you are a Marine. Yeah. Because it is a core of Marines. So they say so once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah. You're a Marine until you die. Yeah. And it's incredible to see, like, you see a Marine fall on hard times and they are in need of some help. Mm-hmm. And Marines will just come out of the woodwork. That's awesome. Just come out of the woodwork to help each other. That's awesome. So. That's really cool. 
How many times were you deployed in that six years? Uh, well, so I've deployed while on drilling reserve status because oh, the drilling reserves, they deploy me, as well. Okay. So I deployed, I've deployed four times okay. in my 16 years. Okay. And... Uh, How old were you on those four times? So my, my first deployment was uh, combat deployment to Iraq. Mm-hmm. And I was 22. Okay. When I deployed, I had a, a bunch of from the time I joined, a lot of training, mm -hmm. and then waiting for my unit's rotation to go to Iraq. Okay. Uh, so I didn't didn't end up deploying over till I was 22. Okay. And then I came back from Iraq, and it was, it's been pretty much every four years like clockwork. Oh, so, so then four years later, I, you went. I went to Africa, Morocco, Africa. Okay. And then four years after that. 30. Yep. I deployed to South Korea. Okay. And then. Uh, 34. 34. So the last time in, in uh, just in 2017, I uh, deployed to Latvia. Wow. Wow. And so tell me, so why were the U.S. in uh, Iraq, was it, the first one? Why were the U.S. there? So there's probably a lot of different political reasons. Yeah, I'm why. sure there is that you and I aren't privy to. Yeah, <laughs> and, and political opinions and, and different things. Of course. Um, I have my, my reason uh -huh. for being there and my, the way I saw it and why I, I agree mm -hmm. with the U.S. being there. In Iraq. In Iraq. Uh-huh. When you were 22. Uh, when I was 22, so this was in 2005. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all knew that the atrocities that Saddam Hussein was committing on his own people, on other people in the region there. Because mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have asked, like, like okay, so Al-Qaeda and all that, you know, like it was, it was based out of Afghanistan, and they're the ones that attacked the U.S. Mm -hmm. on 9-11. Mm -hmm. So... Why invade Iraq? Mm -hmm. Well, because Al-Qaeda and the Taliban was not only in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that unrest over there and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the different factions of terrorist organizations uh, would get partial like state sponsorship. Mm -hmm. Either turning a blind eye... Or, or the governments of countries like actively sheltering them, or even actively funding and arming them. Al Qaeda. Yep. Gosh. And and the more that they infiltrated in controlled areas, the mm -hmm. you know, the worse it would get, right? Okay. And there's just a huge kind of anti, not just American, anti-Western, like anti. Uh, European, American, everything, anti-Western sentiment in that region. So it's this big threat there, right? Okay, okay. So the way I viewed it in why being in Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, Iraq was the powerhouse. Oh, okay. They had the largest army, mm -hmm. the, absolutely the most capable, mm -hmm. the most threatening. Okay. And... 
from a and like and all these decisions they were way above my pay grade so yeah i don't know there was probably you know like i said a lot of other politics and whatever stuff involved in it right but of course if you have to you know think of just a a schoolyard fight okay mm -hmm. and a kid who's pretty capable fighter himself is being bullied mm -hmm. and it and it's bullies always what do you say rats run in packs right yeah, yeah. bullies never act on their own they always have their posse their group of people uh -huh. and uh and so if you're gonna be if you're attacked by this, this group of of bullies right mm -hmm. there's always a the one clear leader that everybody follows yeah. within that group of bullies yeah yeah and the tactics are if you take down the one bully you take the leader out, the biggest, baddest one on, take them out fast and hard. Mm -hmm. The rest of them usually back, back off. off. That is how I saw Iraq. Iraq. Saddam was Iraq. by far the bully, the, the biggest, most capable. Uh, had they had the most, the most weapons, the biggest army, the most equipment. Mm. Uh, military equipment set up everything mm -hmm. between uh, of, of all of those like in, in that region so mm -hmm. Iraq Jordan Syria uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran and and all of that right mm -hmm. and so I mean now if you think about like who's the the threatening one there and and it's it's Iran mm. but that's because Iraq has been taken out of that that picture right mm -hmm. uh so that's why i feel like like one like why you why we were there you, like you why iraq them. and then the biggest reason like why are we over there mm -hmm. even like iraq or afghanistan mm -hmm. you never ever ever want to fight a war in your own backyard oh okay and they came to us by um with 9-11 so then you said okay well if you're gonna take us out and take out our citizens then we're gonna make sure we your group is eliminated yeah we were I mean yeah they waged war on terrorism yeah uh, and the state sponsors of terrorism and and all the, the politics be behind that uh, but the way that I saw it was I I saw the aftermath over yeah. there and it's yeah. not pretty yeah and as heartless as this may be, I would rather it be them over there than that aftermath be my wife and kids over here. And the aftermath that happened at 9-11. Right. Know. You don't want to see that all the time. Like, yeah. And even just to the, the, just like the infrastructure. We, we don't drive down our highways and, and having bomb craters on the side of our highways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or having to worry if if your minivan with your family driving down the highway is going to accidentally like set off a, a victim actuated IED or something like that and get blown up and this was what al-qaeda was doing to their people was yeah. making it dangerous they were they were doing it uh and and they weren't just doing it like trying to target us while we were there and it and them being the side product of it you look at it when they they tried to have 
democratically held elections and Al-Qaeda would send suicide bombers to blow up the people going to the polls. Mm, mm. That, that's to instill fear, to keep them mm. from being able to vote. Yeah. Then that's the terrorism that their people were dealing with. Yeah. So the way that I saw it was, like I say, ever since the 1970s, the U.S. has been an all-volunteer force. Mm. None of our people were drafted. So every one of our service members who was sent to Iraq volunteered for it, has been properly trained and equipped mm -hmm. to go fight them over there. Mm. And as long as we keep them busy over there, mm. they're not coming over here. Mm. They're not blowing up cafes and, yeah. and blowing up polling places and attacking us over here. Every once in a while, you, we'll see it. You'll, you'll see one. And but just, you know, and and there's still ones that that get in. Uh, it was just a couple of years ago in San Bernardino, and two people with ties to Al Qaeda that went on a shooting spree in San Bernardino, California. Yeah. And uh, and that was a terrorist attack. Um, yeah. So so it still happens a little bit, but it's not like like nine eleven. Yeah. It's it's more unorganized small cells of yeah. radicalized yeah, terrorists. Yeah. It's not the organized Well that's what this one was Al Qaeda with it wasn't Al Qaeda. With uh with like you know the the millions and millions of dollars that that these terrorist organizations have like funding the training and all that and then you know to be able to do these fly attacks. planes into stuff that kill three thousand yeah plus people. So, so it, it, it minimizes. So the more we, if, if we're over there, they're fighting trained, equipped people, military people who volunteer to know what that, that's what they're getting into. Not, and, and the terrorists have to fight them. The yeah. terrorists don't get to just go out and slaughter our innocent, innocent civilians yeah. that so are So you guys are like the people that are fighting the bullies for us so that we can sit home and do podcasts. <laughs> that's that's actually that's exactly because my kids my kids will ask there's been numerous times when I'm deploying or even when I'm just going on training stuff and, and my kids will be crying and it's like you know they don't want me to go they're like why of do you course, have to go you're their dad and uh and I just tell them because someone has to deal with the bullies yeah yeah and that's I, you guys I hate bullies <laughs> yeah, we I all hate do. Bullies. We all so do, but will, some of us uh, do more about it than others, and you're one of those, as well as the other people that serve. So the next place that you were at was Africa. Yep, and Morocco, so, Africa. Yeah, why were why were you in um, Africa? I was in Africa because Africa is America's oldest standing ally. Okay. Uh, Mor Morocco, Africa. Sorry. Okay. So Africa is the continent, right? So the country of Morocco. Okay. Is America's oldest standing ally. They were okay. the first country to officially recognize America when we declared our independence from Great Britain in 1776. Okay. And we've been allies ever since. Wow. And, I had no idea. Yep. That's cool. Uh, and we've been there a couple of different times. Um, what were you there for that time history. for? So, so, and when I said we've been there, as in like the U.S. has sent Excuse forces me, over there a couple not of different you. times. You were there but, once. Yeah, at I was there once. Yep. Twenty-six. And I was there uh, specifically helping train Moroccan tankers 
oh, on cool. tactics yep. and on the new the M1 Abrams tank. So they currently they had a they had a fleet of like 200. Uh, they they buy our their military equipment from us, okay. being allies. So they had a fleet of like 200 uh, M60 tanks, the older tanks like we used in uh, well before Desert Storm. So. Okay. 1970s and 80s okay uh and 60s i guess and um and morocco wanted to learn how to use them well they they knew like with the m60s but they're upgrading their entire fleet to m1 abrams okay which is what we currently have okay uh and so we went over there and and we were out help train in in the sahara desert that sounds great and uh <laughs> And it was, it was awesome. It was, it was really, at first it was a little bit of a shock. Because mm-hmm. um, the only Arabic speaking places I'd been, like when, when I deployed to Iraq, I was, I, I spent time in, in Kuwait and Iraq and Jordan and Syria. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the, Arabic speaking around like they were, uh, it, it was an unsafe environment. I won't say most of the people were trying to kill us because most of the people were happy we were there in my experience. Okay. But it was a very dangerous Place. Like, combat situation. So yep. that was kind of like ingrained in my mindset. Like, like you, you hear Arabic being sp- spoken and you're in a, a dangerous place. And in Morocco, the common language is Arabic and the business language I didn't is know that. French. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. So. But it's different mindset and there. Everybody there was incredibly friendly and awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, it's like, just just because of past experience, I had to overcome that and be like, well, hey, it was I'm not in danger you. at all. Yeah. Like, yeah. And uh, and and it was awesome. So I mean, because we were. Like, we integrated our crews. Like, we'd swap crew members. <laughs> so, for a while, like, I was a gunner on one of the M60 tanks. Cool. With an in- the, the rest of the crew was uh, were Moroccan tankers. <laughs> and and I, I couldn't speak. Wow. Any, like, I don't know very much Arabic. So, I couldn't understand any of what they were saying. Like, actually saying if they were having a conversation. But felt completely safe. I felt completely safe. And I could, because we their tactics and training and and it, and with tanks across the board like there's there's a pretty pretty good similar set of of uh tank doctrine uh-huh. uh you know tanks are a pretty they're actually a pretty young thing on the uh, you know initially from world war one with the the very first basic ones in world war two but that's like the first time they were ever introduced right and then coming up through and so i found because i've got to work with a lot of different tankers from different countries over the years and and it's like tankers are tankers in any army or any military anywhere around the world yeah i would think so they're a bit of an odd duck (laughs) which i think has to do with being sealed in a metal can with (laughs) two or three other people for hours and hours and hours on end Uh -uh. um but uh, but yeah, so I could I could just infer because like from context and whatever their 
their firing commands or whatever, and then... What was going on? You didn't have to speak the language. It was kind of like yep. known as a tanker from one tanker to another. Yep. That's and So cool. I, could, I could catch the gist of it, and then... Uh, yeah. They'd be able to, to, like, highlight the target, and I'd be you sighted in on it. And then yeah. and then the funny, because then in, with the firing commands, uh, the tank commander, because they sit slightly above and behind the gunner, and I was a gunner on his crew, so he would just, he just reach down and tap my shoulder and go, boom! And I'd be like, <laughs> and pull the triggers, like, <laughs> and, and shoot the targets. I'm glad that was so. a better experience for you in Morocco. That was, that sound well, less, uh, not better, but, like, less um, dangerous, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, and it was, a, it was yeah, because it was a non-combat Training, deployment. really. Yep, right? we were over there doing co- uh, like joint training operations with the Moroccans. So, and it was incredible because uh, th it's this it's this mix of Arabic culture and with with the Muslim religion and and all of that, and and the old school barber African culture. Oh. So I I had the opportunity to. At the end of the training evolution, uh, they like on the on one of the last days they wanted to do this like big show for for all the big wigs, the the generals and uh, and and uh, one of the so they have a they have like a kind of a parliamentary monarchy mm -hmm. in Morocco. Um, and when I was there, their king was young, cool. like early 30s, and a great leader. Great. great for his people, and the people loved him. Well, so one of the, like, I don't know, a cousin of his or something, but they referred to as like a crown prince, mm -hmm. uh, but a member of the royal family was there as well, and they watched, you know, we, we set up targets, and, and we had marine tanks side by side with with uh, Moroccan uh -huh. tanks so uh -huh. and but they were like integrated so it was like Moroccan tank marine tank Moroccan tank marine tank uh -huh. and going through this target course that we had set up shooting stuff and blowing things up and and uh, and and they they Hollywooded it they didn't have any EPA no environmental protection agencies thing so you know they for targets and stuff you drag old hulks and and we do this with the Marine Corps in the U.S. as well, like old Jeeps, old tanks and stuff, and use those for targets. Okay. Which is fine. You know, you drain all the fluids and you put them out. Well, they put them out there and then they would like, even like Jeeps, they manhandle 55-gallon drums of fuel into the back seats of Jeeps and stuff. Oh, no. So when you shot it, it was like oh, fireball in the sky. It was like Hollywood, like movie, <laughs> like fireballs blowing up and things going everywhere and looked oh, all cool no. for everybody because they were sitting up on a plateau, like the, the member of the royal family and all these generals like watching the show, show, right? Thinking you guys are awesome. And that's exactly, we're like, yeah, the last day we got to put on this dog and pony show. So, so we did that. But then the cool thing was in like, the, the member of the royal family had come down and to the Moroccan like bivouac campsite the, the the camp they had set up for the the couple of months we we're out there like out in the, the Sahara desert and and they were having this huge feast 
and myself and four other guys from from my unit were personally invited to come join their their big feast. Cool. And it was incredible. Awesome. It was absolutely incredible. It was like what a cool experience. Like they were they had a had to be like a 30 foot high bonfire and <laughs> and dancing around it and people playing on bongo drums and different uh, oh, that sounds amazing. Instruments that I'd never seen or heard of before. Mm -hmm. And they just, they had like a, like a lean-to tent and rugs laid out on the dirt and you sit yeah, right on the yeah, ground yeah. And, the, and the tables were only about eight inches off of the ground and just huge platters heaped like, like two feet high heaped with like <laughs> couscous and, and some type of small game like, uh, poultry yeah there's just and everything was just incredibly delicious and so we got to be there and that was i was like wow how like this little kid raised up on a farm little, little farm boy from nowhere idaho uh -uh. and I actually i got to dine with royalty yeah that's like, awesome and that's when i was like oh, that's this it's pretty incredible it's pretty good gig that's that's one that of the part. experiences that i feel like in the military this throughout history uh, and across the world, the, the military provides an opportunity that breaches all social classes. And you can, you can be in the worst, lowest, most horrific situations while in the military. But you can also like be in, be in areas moments. where you're like dining with royalty. Yeah, two feet of food. That is, that is big explosions. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff that that from your social class or socioeconomic status you would never be able yeah to be in otherwise you can't just walk into that it, it kind of sunk home to me like wow like this is cool no, nobody else gets to experience this kind of thing like dying with royalty tell me about your deployment when you were 30 to korea south korea south korea why were you there uh so this one was a little it, it wasn't as laid back and fun as morocco as morocco North Korea has been, and, and at that time, this was uh, 2013, and they were con constantly testing their ballistic missiles, trying to get intercontinental ballistic missile capabilities. Because uh, if they could attach, attach a nuclear warhead to an intercontinental ballistic missile, they could, you know, they could attack anywhere in the U.S., mm -hmm. fire it across the Pacific. And they keep testing these, and it's like this big muscle flexing game, mm -hmm. right? They're posturing. And a lot of people around the world, I didn't even really, I never even thought about it until I got orders that we were deploying to South Korea, and I started studying up on it and everything. Uh, the Korean War never ended. Mm. Never ended. They're still at war. Mm. It, they, had, they had an armistice, like a ceasefire. Mm. That's the longest standing ceasefire in history. But the, the war never ended. And mm -hmm. so they still have the demilitarized zone. And 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 I was there. And, you know, like I got to spend time on the demilitarized zone. And I, you could cut the tension with a knife. Mm. 24 hours a day. Mm. Uh, so, so not only are, you know, they're testing these inter, intercontinental ballistic missiles or trying to, trying to get ones... Uh, that w that would successfully be able to reach other other places and and not just the U.S. but other allies, you know, Japan, uh, 
but but they're also even their ground force and everything. It's this constant just threat and tension of are they gonna just mass their armies mm-hmm. and push down straight south through the demilitarized zone and invade South Korea again. So were you there to help the South Koreans with tanks again to be able to help train them in their tanks? Uh, not really. We did we did some maneuvers with the South Koreans, uh-huh. but it wasn't to train them. They don't use okay. our tanks. They use their own tanks, their okay. own design. They okay. have their own tactics and stuff. So we did share tactics back and forth. But the sole purpose of, of us going uh, was in kind of all that posturing of everything going on mm-hmm. and in the different talks between ambassadors and whatever other kind of stuff. And I guess that the, what was, what was told came to me. So I don't, I don't know, I can't verify its accuracy. Um, but this is what was told to us is the reason that we were sending specifically the tanks over there. So, so we were sending a lot more troops. I mean, we have full-time bases in South Korea. In South Korea. Uh-huh. Like army bases and a Marine Corps base down the south part of the, the peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we, so we, because they're huge allies of ours and we train every year. We have training missions mm-hmm. where we go over there and we train with the South Koreans. So was this just that? This one was, this one was different. It was because of how the tensions were rising and all the stuff that was, okay. that was uh, growing. The you know, higher-ups, political, whatever, they decided we wanted to do a show of force. Okay. So what did that mean? What did you so, do? So it's kind of that, you know, like if two people are going to fight and they're like like pushing and flexing and whatever before they actually start throwing blows, right? That was so, your job, was to push and flex back to North Korea so, yeah, as so, a military. So they were like, okay, so we're going to go over and we're going we're gonna to fly like stealth bombers over and drop bombs on training ranges and show, you know, like we're we're gonna and we're gonna send people over there and do all these maneuvers with, with, the 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 South Koreans, and build up more troops over there and everything and and show all this to be like, look, you don't want to mess with us, kind of okay. thing, right? Okay. Okay. And in in all years past with all the training stuff, they typically they didn't send tanks over. It's tanks are a logistical nightmare. They take a ton of fuel, a ton of repair yeah. parts. They're yeah. heavy. You gotta. You typically can't fly them in. You gotta ship them in on a boat. All this stuff, right? Well, so the story that the the way it was told to us that was that in in some of the talks between the North Koreans and the South Koreans or something like that, uh, one of the North Korean generals or something had had brought up like, well, look, the only deep water seaport in South Korea is Incheon, which is up north by Seoul. All we have to do is push across the DMZ and capture Incheon. And you guys can't even... You can't bring in your giant ships with all your equipment to land everything in there. And most of South Korea is incredibly mountainous. Mm-hmm. They're like, so... Like, you are you have limited different airfields that you could fly mm-hmm. even with the giant... Mm-hmm. military birds that could fly equipment in mm-hmm. uh so like basically you're we we'd have a lock on it right like yeah. you, you guys would be you'd be hosed you'd be toast see so, so them from doing that well so our, our thing one of the marine generals was like he was like hey 
let's uh, let's show them what we can actually do. That it doesn't matter if they capture Inchon, because and I think I, I mentioned this a little earlier. So the Marine Corps specifically, because we're amphibious and we need to be able to respond anywhere in the world. So they literally, and and this was the whole point of our maneuver. I mean, we went and we shot targets on ranges afterwards, but the whole point of our maneuver was literally just getting our tanks there. Mm -hmm. So we were very far south is where we initially landed, if you will. Mm -hmm. Southern part of the peninsula, far away from North Korea and the DMZ. They pulled a, a maritime prepositioning ship. That's one of those big cargo ships full of all the equipment. Pulled it up, pulled it up about five kilometers off the coast. Mm -hmm. So it's out to sea. Don't have a deep water seaport. Don't need one. In under 24 hours, from the boat, they have these floating piers, and they go together. It's like, like building Legos almost. Okay. So the crane lifts a section off of the boat, sets it down in the water. Boats that are launched from the big ship, smaller boats, come out, attach, like floated a little bit away from the boat while the crane picks another one up, sets it down, they connect the two. Set, so it literally, it just builds its way from the boat, this floating pier, five kilometers across the water, <laughs> and it's floating on the water to the shore. And then it cranes a tank, sets it on, the tank drives five kilometers, and it's a hairy drive because you have less than a foot on either side of the tank. Wow. <laughs> and it's water. And tanks, yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't float. <laughs> yeah, not. <laughs> so, and, and they, so we, and we just did eight tanks. And that sent the message All we had to do needed. is like, show this capability. You push across a DMZ and, We've got a way to and push back. take Incheon, the only deep water seaport in South Korea. It doesn't matter. We'll still land all our heavy equipment and just walk right through and that was the thing. So one of the, the Marine generals, maybe the Marine Corps Commandant, I'm not sure, had said, said, listen, you want to send them a message? Like, it's one thing to send planes overhead or whatever. It's another thing when you have tanks rolling down streets and it's shaking the buildings because the tank's so heavy mm. and rolling down like mm. that's a footprint on the ground. Mm. And we want to show North Korea that we can land them anywhere. We're around. We don't. We don't need a deep water seaport. Yeah. We have these, and, and, uh, so we went over there, we, we did the maneuvers, and, and we got to work with, uh, with the Moroccan Marines, or, or with the, the South Korean Marines, the, uh, called the Rock Marines, Republic of Korea. So with the Rock Marines, we're incredibly tough, professional, uh, Great awesome and and worked with them all the way like went from the, the far southern part of the peninsula all the way up to the dmz um great and uh and i it 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 kind of worked i think you know yeah. for from 2013 for about three or four years like uh north korea piped down great and it wasn't for like probably at least three years before they started like testing missiles again <laughs> like flexing their muscles but it kind of i think it in that case i was like and all that's way way above me that's you know politicians and generals and whatever making those decisions but 
that was kind of cool for us to see okay we're going over there and we all had this kind of like you know what's what's going to happen and there's a lot of tension over here i'm glad that and it worked out and we that did it didn't our thing and, and we came home and, and then to watch the news for a second yeah and it all like yeah that's awesome tell me down. about your last deployment to um latvia yeah latvia why were you there so that one was a lot like uh that was a lot like korea so latvia is a member of nato okay latvia has a population of three million people okay and they it's have not many nope and they have a they have an army of about six thousand okay and their military intelligence as well as our military intelligence uh had you know they they do their their studies and everything and and they determined if russia were to invade latvia the entire country would fall within 24 hours okay like they stand no chance so your job was kind of the same it's the same thing to russia, be like the support for latvia so russia can see if you go in then we're gonna support them and you cannot it's gonna be really hard yep to take these guys over because we're here too but this one was on a much larger scale okay. so russia was as after if you remember like with crimea six or seven years ago and the, a, a lot of these these nations who were at after so so in in world war ii you know the you had allied forces coming from the west and then at that time you know russia was allied force and they were attacking from the east so like we all went through like normandy and france and and all and and we had allied forces coming up from africa up through uh italy and and everything coming up through the bottom as well and so they're crossing all these different countries and and helping like liberate france and everything and 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 when the war ended you know then we all pulled back and okay france here's you know your your country back and whatever like we're not right. occupying them right russia didn't right and it split germany down the berlin wall and and all the countries they came across portions of finland estonia latvia lithuania georgia a lot of the ukraine like all these the, at the time it wasn't russia it was the, the ussr right and they just enveloped them all and were like you're all part of us now right okay so and then they committed horrible atrocities okay like throughout the 70s and 80s over 200,000 Latvians were slaughtered or shipped off to like his to the gulags so prison camps in central Siberia where they eventually died and were never heard from again gosh uh, and that was just like through the 70s and 80s gosh, Latvia only gained their independence so when when you know the the iconic Berlin President wall. Ronald Reagan you know Mr. Gorbachev tear oh. down this wall yeah. and the Berlin Wall fell and and uh all of that so that was what 80 89 whenever that was right so then it was a couple of years after that before like it took a couple of years before latvia was able to draft their their constitution and and be and, free and officially like this is our constitution and declared their their great, freedom great. they've only had their liberty since 1991 okay so think about 
people who lived under complete oppression for a couple of whole generations. And there are the vast majority of Latvians right now Mm -hmm. are first generation of a free nation. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And Russia was, uh, in 2017, they were amassing troops on the borders all the way from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, all the way down. So we went there as part of a 28-country combined NATO force. Great. So we That's have 28 awesome. 28 countries. Around the world. Yep, that, that are all members of NATO. Okay. The, and that's the whole thing with NATO. An attack on one is attack on us all. And USA is a part of that, We're part obviously. of NATO. Yep. And, cool. I and had no idea. So I had no idea. La- Latvia, on their own, they wouldn't last 24 would hours. Would have been slaughtered. They would be. But as part of NATO, but now they're strong. everybody comes in together... And and they Joseph, had British cool Royal Commandos. It was it was awesome because I got to got to work with British Royal Commandos again. And there's some Kiwis that you were telling me that there, there the, were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, every time uh, there's a few times where I've got to train with or, or work with uh, British Royal Marine Commandos, and I think every single time there's been at least one like in the in the the, the company I'm with. There's been at least one Kiwi who's like they. Uh, left joined. New Zealand to, to, to join, join to become a, yeah. a royal commando. That's awesome. And and those guys are phenomenal, very professional, uh, solid warriors. And uh, I got to work, work with them, work with uh, uh, Norwegian commandos. Like work with 28 of you. So, so many people for you to be able to work alongside and feel as if this just wasn't USA's war. This was... A united front with everybody to be able to be for the same force. I mean, how cool that would. Well, that's and the biggest thing for from for every the Latvians, other deployment. I yeah. mean, this is different. Yeah, but it it had that tension though because it was like we went there and we took all the stuff for the training and all of that, but we all knew like we brought everything to go full on go to war as well. Oh, and so they were already. like, if we. If you were hoping all we that need maybe is it wouldn't, but we get the one command, and instead of being here for like two months, yeah, it's an all-out war. We just load up and we yeah push east and fight the Russians. Gosh, gosh, I'm so glad that it, didn't, there was a lot of tension there. Yeah, I'm but glad it was that didn't work out to, like that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> So that's the end of part one of Joseph's story and I've enjoyed hearing about why he was a Marine and his deployments and why he was out there and I'm grateful for him sharing that with us. That's awesome and way fascinating and I knew nothing about the majority of that and so I appreciate Joseph so much for sharing about that. So in part two, if you'll stick around, this is when he talks about the events of his accident. So hopefully you'll stick around and click on part two to hear Joseph's injury and what the events were around that. Ka kite anō, aui e koutou.